Hello and welcome to the Richard Campbell Podcast. I want to thank you for listening. If you enjoy it, please like and share. You can find me on Instagram at CampbellJr123, something like that. I'm not sure. It's in the bio. Check it out. Also, if you enjoy it so much that you would like to make a monetary donation, you can go to anchor.com slash Richard Campbell Podcast and do it there. Again, thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoy this as much as I enjoy doing it. Hearing people's stories and talking with people and having intimate conversations has really been amazing for me, and I hope it's amazing for you. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this next episode. Here we go. All right, guys, welcome to another episode. I have Yvonne here with me today. She is a wonderful wonderful person and a very strong woman. I, hi. Yeah. Hi. hi. Let's do that. <laughs> How's it going? Good. Good. I get nervous every time. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of weird. You'd think I'd just be used to it. I invited you on here because I think that you have a like really intense story. And I think you came out on the other side better than that. I would like and, to think so. Yeah. And I mean, you know, besides like. We all still struggle with life. I think, like you're winning, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I don't know where to start. Uh, let's dive into that. Just start at the beginning. Where, like, where did you grow up? What was like the family life like? Okay, so I grew up in Wyoming, and um, so the way it was is my dad, my biological dad, was never in the picture, and so my mom met my stepdad when I was about one and a half. They met at a party over a joint and I was like little toddler roaming around the party and he said he saw me and fell in love and then fell in love with my mom after. So I was kind of like the the glue that, that started the relationship, Sweet. which is weird, that, but <laughs> not really. I mean, not really. it's cool. It's cool. Like he really, he just said I had like a spark or whatever that he was drawn to and I went right up to him and that was like kind of how it all started and unbeknownst to my mom he was actually like an IV drug user on the down low and my mom was like drinking and partying but not into that so it was weird I think for her to find all that out and when she did it was like hey dude this this is not what I'm doing with my kid and my next relationship so get your shit together or you never see us again yeah, yeah. Being an IV drug user on the download is pretty difficult. Yeah. I don't know how he did it. He had like a job. Yeah. He was a very functioning addict, but not. He did it for like a couple months and it was just, you know. It doesn't usually work. No, it didn't work no, for me either. No. But it was like the 80s. So who knows? Things were different in the 80s. Seems like people could last longer back then or something. Yeah. Yeah. Things were cheaper. Things were cheaper. That's true. And so so my mom just told him, like, you're out, dude. You got to go or get your shit together. And uh, he detoxed himself, like, in his basement with, like, there was no methanone. There was no Suboxone back then. And um, just cold turkeyed it and then found the rooms, like, the 12-step fellowships in our, like, tiny little town in Wyoming and stayed sober like from there oh really yeah because usually i mean in my experience the ultimatum doesn't work i know know? so that's that's super cool Uh uh-huh like 
he must really like you. <laughs> <laughs> right? I don't know, like, if his suffering was just done. I don't know. Like, he had he had a crazy life anyway. So, you know, I mean, he was probably 30. Maybe yeah. he just had reached the point. But yeah. it was it, you know. And he dove into the, like, rooms. And so I grew up in that, in the environment that we have in, like, 12 Steps. Like, it was N.A. that he went to. Um, and so, I like, my earliest memories with my dad, just him alone was like sitting in a, in a meeting and like going through the key tags in the back of the room and the room would just be filled with like smoke and everyone was laughing and it was not at like particularly funny situations. They could smoke indoors. (laughs) They could, they could do everything back then. It was a different world, but yeah, that's how like I grew up. So it was, um, it was like sobriety, like felt like a requirement to like be in my family. You know, like my mom yeah. was sober, my dad was sober, clean, whatever. And um, it was just like par for the course. We did like serenity prayers at dinner, <laughs> which is like really funny now yeah. because, yeah. Uh, you know, but back then it was like, uh, like I knew the serenity prayer at a young age. Um, halt time was like posted on my fridge, like hungry, angry, lonely, tired and we would talk in I statements and have family meetings about problems. Like we were a very functioning family, like in terms of like where my parents came from and all the stuff they had been through to like what they were able to do with our family. Like pretty remarkable, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they read a lot of books. Yeah. Maybe that's why you're so good at expressing yourself. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a big deal. Like we, we talked about our feelings. We had this horrible game. It was called the ungame because it was like not really a game and it was like these cards and you would draw them and they would like say like, tell us about your most humiliating moment in your life. And we would do that at dinner. You would share that with your family? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if I would share some of those with my, uh, my family. Yeah. It's really strange. Like most families, and I didn't know this until I grew up, but like most families don't have... That kind of like open communication. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's weird, you know, because yeah, we always talked about everything. <laughs> so, so are, are you doing this with like your family dynamic now? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I'm like forcing it on them. Like, I think my parents just felt like they had to just like force all this stuff on us. And it kind of had like the opposite effect where I didn't want to talk to them. It's more for me, like I just leave the door open for her, my daughter, she's 15, to like come to me with stuff. And it works. Like she tells me all kinds of things, things I don't always want to know. And it's like (laughs) kind of weird, (laughs) you know? Yeah. But Uh, it's like exactly what I wanted. I might come to you for advice in a couple years. We'll see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) It's a challenge. People tell you that like uh, the teenage years are bad. But I was not prepared <laughs> for how bad it was going to be. I was not ready. And it's like a like a, like a light switch just flips. And they are like one day, they're like your little kid. And the next day, they're like this young woman who you don't really know and is kind of a bitch. You know? <laughs> She's going to hear you say that. <laughs> she knows. She knows. Okay, cool. We're, like I said, we're super open in our family. That's how we do it. Listen, before we get dinner started, you're being a bitch today, okay? <laughs> yeah, totally. And oh. and you know, like I credit that to my parents because they really they made like 
they came from really abusive families where like don't talk, don't tell, like secrets, everything, you yeah. know, and then they made it like their life's mission to not have a family like that. So they went to counseling and therapy and 12 steps and they did everything like right, you know, that could be done right Yeah. to try and like um, break the cycle, which was like their whole life's goal. So they did it, you know, they broke the cycle because we talked in our family. Um, but as I became a teenager, it was like that part of me that used to tell my parents stuff wouldn't anymore. Yeah. Especially because yeah. I was doing shit I shouldn't have been. Yeah, I I had a different experience. Um, I mean, we won't get into that, but my uh, yeah, my dad didn't really like it when I opened up. He would be like, "What the fuck? <laughs> Go to your room. You're grounded." You right. Know? That was like. But he had his own issues going on, and you know, I like I don't blame him for that now. Like right. now, now we have a great relationship. But yeah, so. Let's get into, like, full How- disclosure, <laughs> I know you're a drug addict. The listeners don't know you're a drug addict. They do now. Um, so so how did that get started? So I would say that it started, I would say that it was, like, always there in the background. Um, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't really drugs at first. It was alcohol because it was socially acceptable. And for whatever reason, like, my dad was a drug addict in recovery. So I just got the message that, like, drugs were bad, but alcohol was okay. They never gave me that message. That was just, like, <laughs> my alcoholic brain twisted it to say, like, well, if you don't do drugs, then your parents won't be disappointed, you know? Yeah. So it, I drank and partied all the way from, like... I don't know, 14, 15 into like my mid twenties. And it was just alcohol, a little bit of weed, you know, like I was never like, uh, I never, I've never been to a rave. Like I've never done any of like the rave drugs, which is so weird. But, um, I was a, I was a drinker and I was a bar fly and I like lived at the bars and you know, I was that girl at the bars. I don't have much experience in bars. And I don't remember the experiences I do have. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, thank God that social media wasn't a thing because there yeah, would be yeah. a lot more evidence of me. For sure. <laughs> I, I I don't know how that would be these days. It would be a different world. It yeah. would be a different world. Because we had MySpace, but like the phones weren't capturing no, you no. know, live streams of me like falling off the bar and like just making a fool of myself like that wasn't happening i remember when like the first apps were like a lighter app like you press it and it lights up (laughs) (laughs) exactly it was a different Uh, world yeah but yeah so i mean i i was just kind of like a party girl and i was in so the other weird thing that happened to me is my parents didn't raise me to be like um to put up with shit in relationships like They did everything they could to show me that, like, I could be, like, a strong person. But somehow I ended up in all these abusive relationships, like, one after the next. And then I would get it out of an abusive relationship and get right into another one. And so in that, like, time frame in there, um, I got into the relationship with my daughter's dad. And it went terribly. And I had multiple chances to leave. And I didn't leave. And I stayed. And, um... After that relationship, I had decided I finally got rid of him and it was like, 
he moved out to like live with my dad and my little sister and that was like <laughs> my golden opportunity yeah like super yes. awkward super awkward I like <laughs> he's still living he was still living with them after we broke up for like a whole summer or two so it was weird but I finally got out of that relationship and around that time I had gotten into like pain pills and had kind of dabbled with taking more than I was supposed to. And I had some like weird medical condition that they couldn't find out. So they were just throwing pain pills at me as opposed to giving me a diagnosis. Like lots of them, like yeah. Dilaudid and crazy shit. And oh, like, so, so you know, good stuff. yeah, yeah. And it was, uh, I liked it like a yeah. ton. Like I liked it way more than drinking. Well, how old were you? I was 26. 26. Okay. So you got started way later than I did. Way late. Yeah. 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 Like, I've nodded off in a class, like, yeah. 16 years old. You yeah. Know? Like, as um, is the case with most with most heroin addicts, for some reason in particular, um, I've found a lot of them are young when they start. But, like, you know, in high school, I was just partying. Like, I was just drinking. And if people had drugs, I was like, I don't do drugs. Like, yeah, <laughs> I would yeah. tell people, like, as I'm on a keg stand, like, and they've got coke, I'd be like, ooh, that's too addictive. I don't do addictive drugs. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm drinking. Yeah. Yeah. The no, most addictive. I I was the guy going in and out of the bathroom, you know? Yeah. Like I would play a game of beer pong, go to the bathroom. Play a game of beer pong, go to the bathroom. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's how it was for most people. Like yeah. I just somehow, like drugs were around me and a lot of the guys I dated did drugs. Um, meth came into the scene in my household at one point. And I wanted nothing to do with it. I found like a syringe. I was, you know, I I remember I found this syringe and uh, I told my boyfriend at the time that he needed to go to the Betty Ford clinic. And he was like all twacked out. And he was like, the, what is the Betty Ford clinic? Like, and it was like the only rehab I'd ever heard of in my life. So like, I didn't, I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew that like drugs and syringes and spoons were bad, you yeah, know? And yeah. like somehow alcohol wasn't. Like that was just, and so that's how it went until, um, you know, I would party and wake up in strange places and make horrible decisions when drinking, but it was always justified and laughed off because everybody gets drunk, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like not everybody gets drunk and like, you know, ends relationships and friendships when they're wasted. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I, I don't think I ever drank normally, yeah. you know? I would drink and I would wake up like naked with marker all over me at my friend's house, mm -hmm. you know? Well, yeah, I never drank normally <laughs> either. But here's the funny thing about alcohol is like you can maintain your lifestyle so much longer Yeah, it's when you're more drinking. like socially acceptable, mm -hmm. um, which is probably something we as a society need to work on, but uh, doubt it. Budweiser makes a lot of money. Yeah, they make a lot of money. <laughs> the alcohol makes, companies make so much money. But, yeah. so I mean, that was like, you know, that was like problem number one is that like, I already, I already knew my drinking wasn't okay, but nobody around me like would ever say anything about it. Yeah. I mean like, hey, you got wasted and you embarrassed us. Here's some funny pictures that we took with a 35 millimeter camera that, you know, like that yeah. took a week to develop. <laughs> but like there was no there was nobody like coming to me with concerns and so I made all kinds of horrible decisions and put myself in incredibly jeopardizing situations all through ages 15 to 26 you know like it was on and popping every weekend um and after so I'm in this abusive relationship I finally get out 
my daughter at that time is about a year and a half and I'm like, I'm going to be a single independent woman. Like finally I'm free from this abusive relationship. And then I like meet a dude on Mill Avenue, like when I'm wasted one night and, uh, he worked at the hot dog stand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Great life choices. It was, so. <laughs> I thought, yeah, this is the one, you know, he can make me happy. Did he have tattoos and long hair? Or <laughs> he didn't. No, <laughs> oh. <laughs> he was, so what he was is like one of those like down low, like junkies, but I didn't know anything about junkies because like I had that little situation with the meth in my house. And then like, that was it. Like I didn't, I wasn't in the, loop of what it looked like so we start dating and little things start happening like $20 goes missing a couple of times um he has to borrow my car like every morning um to drive all over phoenix and <laughs> like things like I'll that be back in 30 minutes babe <laughs> yeah like three and a half hours i'm late to work i don't know what's going on you know yeah, yeah. and um, there was like little black marks all over my counters from like the bottoms of the spoons, but I didn't know anything about bottoms of spoons. I didn't know anything. Yeah. I was this like, like a super naive, you know, girl. Yeah. And now I feel really bad because I was that guy. You know? <laughs> right? <laughs> I was the perfect mark. Like yeah. I was working at a bank, like making killer money. I had like a little kid. I had just got out of an abusive relationship and I liked pain pills. Like, he couldn't have found a better, you know, like a better person to take advantage of. And that's what happened, you know? Because, I mean, that's just what yeah. happened. Yeah, he maybe didn't even do it on purpose. I'm sure he, he didn't. He just couldn't control himself. Yeah. You know? Well, like, he couldn't stop. You know what I mean? He yeah. was far in. Like, so I find him in the bathroom one day uh, with, like, a needle hanging out of his neck. And I was, you know, my daughter was sleeping in the next room and I flip out and I do everything that like you imagine would happen when you are like not doing hardcore drugs and you find someone doing hardcore drugs <laughs> in your house with your child, you know, yeah. I do all of that and I throw him out and this big scene ensues and like, I don't know, like 20 minutes after he left, like a, a part of my brain was like, well, maybe you could try it. You know, like it was just this little voice in my head. And so I, I don't know, I let him back in and he was going to go to detox and he was going to quit this time and he was just going to smoke weed this time and like all of this stuff. And he I'll quit on your couch and, you know, and the whole time he's like still getting high, but like, I'm so naive, I don't see it. And, yeah. um, finally I just talked him into like, like it, I spent like two weeks talking him in to letting me try it, you know, like, I just want to try it because there was this like whole part of, of his life and a lot of other people I had been with lives that existed, this drug world, this, you know, love affair, yeah, if you will. And I wanted to be a part of that. Like, it was like, there was half of the person you weren't getting or like 90% of them. Yeah. You were, you were like excluded from like a part of his life. A huge you, you part. You didn't want to be excluded from that. Yeah. And so it was kind of like, let's go, let's see what this is about. You know, and he had been, he had been using like IV heroin for 17 years at this point. So he was a seasoned vet and I was like naive girl. And so within, I don't know, a week of trying it, like I was fully strung out, you Did know. Did you go straight to IV? Uh-huh. God. 
Yeah. It was, wow. <laughs> it was the weirdest shit, too, because I was, I've always had, like, really bad veins, and, like, getting my blood drawn prior to being an IV user was, like, a nightmare. They'd have to call, like, the pediatric nurse with the special needle just to get my veins, you know? Did he hit it first try? First try. Yeah. Practice makes perfect. Yep. He had 17 <laughs> years of experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He definitely now in his his life now. I hope he's a phlebotomist. I don't know what he's doing, but I hope he's a phlebotomist. Yeah. Um, because he was yeah he could hit it, and so <laughs> it was off and popping, and like you know, meanwhile I have this like toddler running around, and I'm trying to like live this two two lives in one, and I work at a bank like this fancy bank in, at Chase Bank, and I would like shoot up in the bathroom, and then like nod out well I remember nodding out and doing someone's notary and I woke up like and my pen had gone across the whole notary and I, I was like what the hell you know and my poor yeah. bank is like what the hell yeah and they have of course they're corporate so they have all these like policies they have to follow when like confronting somebody about this stuff and like they gotta write you up this number of times they gotta ask they can't random drug test you without random drug testing everybody so this thing was like going on for a few months and I was just reading, so like, uh, I want to write a book. And uh, I was just reading some writings that I had done when I first got sober. And one of them was about my intervention. So I had been working at this bank, getting high, leaving. I could like barely survive a day. If it was payday, I'd make it till like 9.30. I would take like, I would take like two lunches, you know, and I'm trying to do people's investments, like high up shit, <laughs> totally getting high in the bathroom. And... Um, so my, I decided like I was still had no money, you know, cause I yeah. got making all this money and I'm just spending it. I'm just doing more dope and more Coke than ever before in my life. Yeah. And it's fully progressing now to like, um, I'm stealing from my mom and I have like this genius idea and I was reading myself writing about this, like that it would be a really good idea if I Western union myself money from her credit card to me. In my own name, because what's illegal about that? It's going to me. It's not a fraudulent person. And she had been Western Union me so much money because like I was using all these excuses for being like a single mom and I'm just struggling and I need money. So like it was already like set up. Her account had already been set up with Western Union. So I did it like four times. Um, it was like 450 bucks each time. And she got her bank statement and she had already been concerned. She lived in flag. I was in Phoenix and she yeah. was, she was already knew something was up, you know, like she's a mom and she's uh, one of us. And she grew up with people in her whole family that were one of us. So like she saw it coming. Um, especially cause I was wearing like the last time I saw her before the intervention, I was wearing a sweater. It was like 95 degrees out. Yeah. That's always a good sign. <laughs> yeah. She was like, I'm sweating, yeah. but I will not take off my sweater, you know? Uh, yeah. My poor, poor mother. So she, uh, I was reading about this intervention. What happened was that, um, my daughter had gotten picked up by like the ex's parents the night before and it was supposed to be like a regular pickup time and they did a day early pickup and I remember saying to my boyfriend at the time like I think someone's gonna do an intervention on us like I just had that feeling that people that the gig was up you yeah, know yeah and sure enough like the next day my mom was standing outside and uh she was with a lady and a clipboard and my sister and my stepmom 
and I barricaded myself in my house, like a crisis hostage negotiation situation. And they like tried to come through the window, like banged on the door. And then the boyfriend let them in. And then I locked myself in my bedroom demanding, <laughs> I had demands that I needed a pack of cigarettes and a Pepsi or I wasn't coming out. I mean, just like the most selfish, self-seeking, yeah. psycho behavior, like a caged animal, you know, like I was like a, a caged animal and I was just petrified because I didn't want to quit. Even though I knew the gig was up, like I wanted, I wanted to keep getting high. And I remember telling um, somebody around that time that I was only going to do dope for like a year and a half and then I would get my shit together and everything would be fine. And that it was my turn because <laughs> I had taken care of yeah. all these people. And I was like, I'm going to do this for a minute, but then I'm going to be good. Yeah. And so I ended up, so they ended up intervening. It was this horrible scene, most of which is like really, I could never figure out why it was so um, blacked out in my brain. But when I was reading this writing that I had done, like I did all my drugs while I was barricaded in my bedroom. And so that's why I can't remember the intervention because I was so high. And they told us we had to go to rehab and detox and all this. So we go, have no intention of staying sober, but I tell them I do. And um, I do like the six days in detox and all the counselors tell my mom, like, do not give her any more money. Do not help her with anything. Take her kid away. This is how you help her. And so by the time I got out of the detox, my mom was like a, like an Al-Anon woman all of a sudden. And she said, if you don't stay sober, you're on your own. Yeah. And so, you know, I think I stayed sober like two hours outside of detox. Yeah. And, and it, that was it. Like, they took my kid and gave her to um, her dad's family. And then uh, she was like about two or so. And then I just was off and running on the streets of Phoenix, like staying on people's couches. I had the boyfriend still because why not? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. He had 17 years experience. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, I yeah. needed him. Like as much as he had used me in the beginning, you know, I we spent the next four years using each other um, to to maintain our habits. And um, so that's what it looked like for a really long time. And we were uh getting caught up on shoplifting charges and like little petty shit but what I was really good at was panhandling um probably because I was like this like naive looking like young white girl that looked like she didn't belong anywhere you know <laughs> oh honey here's a dollar <laughs> yeah. yeah and it worked it worked really well and um so like that's mainly how we supplied our habit was my panhandling and like fly flying signs on the freeway and you yeah. know I, I refuse to give panhandlers money. Uh-huh. If, like, if it's, like, if it's snowing outside, like, I've given them my jacket and stuff, you know, like, I'll buy them food occasionally, but, like, I will not give them money because I know where it's going. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, like, I guess there was this one time this guy was, like, I just really need a bottle. I was, like, here's three bucks, dude. Go get a Mickey's. Right. You know? Right. But, I only give them money, so... There were days while I was panhandling in this, like, Phoenix life where it's, like, 115 outside. I am, like, dope sick, you know? And rough, dude. 
Were you still were you still cold and getting goosebumps? Yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> yeah. It was like the sweatiest you'll ever be in your life is dope sick in Phoenix yeah. on the streets, and it was it was just a nightmare, you know. And and so there were days where people would give me money, and like I remember praying genuinely, like God, if I don't get this next twenty dollars, I'm gonna jump in front of that bus, and every single fucking time I got twenty dollars. It was like there were days where people giving me a dollar saved my life and there were days where it just furthered my addiction but they both existed you know and yeah and especially once I started getting abscesses because I because because I, <laughs> I wasn't meant to be a junkie like an IV user it wasn't in the cards and so like my veins would blow out and things would happen and so like I had my in the first six months of using I had hep C and a full-on surgical removal of a abscess within six months. Yeah. Six months? Six months. Damn. And, and it was just... And then it just went from there. Because, like, what I didn't know at the time is that, like, I had MRSA, which is, you know, a blood um, staph infection, basically. It just circulates in your blood. Yeah. And it's resistant to most antibiotics. And so I had MRSA and every time I would shoot up with like the same needle or one I had used previously, I was reinfecting myself with MRSA. So after that first six months, I probably had anywhere between 10 and 15 abscesses. Um, and they would get bad where I would, you know, some of them I would go to the hospital for and hospitals and I started to have like a certain kind of horrible relationship because um, every time I went in for like an abscess, I would lie, first of all, and I would say it was, <laughs> I always said it was a brown recluse spider bite. Um, they knew I had track yeah. marks. Yeah. I was homeless. Yeah. <laughs> Never seen anybody get bit 15 <laughs> times in, uh, in, in four months. <laughs> so, so a pattern developed yeah. with me and the doctors in the emergency rooms where they, you know, and the first time I had the abscess, uh, I went in and they wouldn't, they refused to give me any sort of anesthetic, but they had to surgically cut it out. And uh, they were holding me down on the table and I was screaming and like... Why did they do that? I feel like they did it to teach me a lesson. I really do. I really still to this day feel like they were like, no, fuck this. And I, I'm sure there's some medical rules about like if you already have opiates we can't give you more opiates or whatever yeah, but they could have put you to sleep or something i know dude. like yeah it was bad it was bad and so like that's what would start to happen whenever i would go to an emergency room is like this horrible situation would unfold and doctors and i would be arguing and i would leave crying ama you know with an iv hanging out of my arm <laughs> <laughs> like, that's how it went for like four years <laughs> yeah oh. and it was ugly and, um, and so somewhere in that time frame, like what ended up happening was the MRSA became like in my bloodstream. And so like, it didn't matter if I actually shot up there, if I got like a little cut or I had like a pimple, like I would get MRSA there, Yeah, yeah. you know? And so I had, um, the worst ever it was, is I like ended up in the neuro unit and that's because I had an abscess on the side of my face and it was too close to my brain. So they had to like admit me. And that was, like, two years before I quit shooting up, you know? And so around that time, um, I like, all kinds of fucking shit happened. It was the wildest shit ever, Richie. <laughs> like, yeah. Every well. day. <laughs> it was insane. Like, just, like, weird shit of, like, 
my um like the my boyfriend at the time would go to jail and I would be alone on the streets of Phoenix definitely still not well equipped or like gangster enough to hold it down yeah I mean I don't know if you really have to be gangster you know <laughs> I don't know I know a you lot have to of be like, tough I yeah tough and gangster are different <laughs> though, okay because I know a lot of like Skinny little white boys who did just fine out yeah, there. Yeah, they did. You know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but being a girl yes. on the streets so of Phoenix was a challenge. And I feel like... So, like, I tell my mom this because she had a lot of resentment against the boyfriend. I think she probably still does. And I tell her that, like, I went into it eyes wide open. You know what I mean? Like, I knew, yeah. like, as much as there was to know. Like, I had Googled, you know, heroin withdrawal. Like, I was, I was fully prepared but um, what she she was so angry with him, and I tell her like he was kind of like my street guardian angel because while it was horrible, all of it, um, if I hadn't been in a relationship, it would have been that much more horrible to be alone on the streets of Phoenix. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and who knows where that would have led you? Yeah, because even with him, like horrible things happen. You know, I mean, I, I got sexually assaulted on the streets of Phoenix and he was like two blocks away when it happened. Like that was actually in Tempe. I mean, just crazy shit would happen. People would wake us up in the middle of the night with like a knife and like a crack pipe and say like, you got to smoke this crack with us. Like, (laughs) (laughs) what is happening? Uh, I can't say I've ever had that happen. I wish maybe it did just once so I could experience it. It was weird. It was the weirdest shit ever. Was it like, like a, was it like another homeless guy okay yeah it was on like 7th street and uh camelback yo wake up wake up i gotta smoke we gotta smoke this crap yeah he was like in a state of serious psychosis because he was like i can't smoke it alone you know so he like found some sleeping homeless people to like force crack onto yeah and i was like you know i never liked crack so i was like just no and the boyfriend was like, you better do it. Like, you smoked crack, yeah. you know? <laughs> free drugs are free drugs, woman. <laughs> it was just insane. And, you know, like, I was telling my clients this story about, like, a time where... Because people would offer up, like, their house. Like, hey, come stay on my house and, I don't know, smoke some crack or some meth with us. And it was always something like that. But, like, the deal was always, like, we come as a package deal because I knew damn well... I couldn't go alone anywhere. Yeah. And so we would end up in these like weird houses with people. And the weirdest one was like a house that was filled with cockroaches. And we took a shower and I got done with the shower first. And I came out into like this guy's disgusting living room. And he lays out this like, I swear to God, it was like a, like a murder set of knives. He like unrolls this thing and it's just like knives and he's like... Like a butcher's kit. Yeah. A butcher slash murder, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's like, <laughs> he's like, oh, we'll wait until he gets out of the shower. And uh, as soon as he got out of the shower, like, we grabbed our shit and ran. Like, you know, it's just everything about it felt like we might be murdered here tonight. What the fuck? Yeah. And so that's what it was. It was like just shit like that, like over and over. And, and like most people would think, oh, that's a good time to get sober. And my mom would appeal, you know, please, I'll take you to rehab. And she paid astronomical amounts of money to send me to rehabs. But I couldn't break up with the boyfriend. That was, like, the one thing I wouldn't change. I'd go to a halfway house or I'd, like, 
take the suggestions of the counselors except for that one. Yeah. And he was still getting high all the time, you know? So, like, there were times where I'm living in a halfway house and I'd go visit him and just sit around and watch him get high and be sober. And, you know, you go to a barbershop enough times, like, you get a haircut. And so the person that you say you love or whatever is shooting dope, like, you start shooting dope. It's just what happens if you're around them, you know? And so... Um, so the last time that she paid for the rehab, it was like, okay, sorry about that. Where were we? Oh, (laughs) I think it was one of the times I, it was the time my mom said she wasn't going to pay for rehab anymore. Gotcha. So I had been in and out of rehabs, but I kept keeping the boyfriend and then I would go back to the lifestyle. And, um, you know, so the last time that she, she said, this is it. This is your last chance. Call me when you're actually ready to get sober. Um, it was kind of like I knew she was done at that point. And so from there, it only got worse, which um, was crazy. But I ended up, so I ended up pregnant. And this is kind of like the part of the story that's weird. But looking back on it now, I can see exactly like when it happened. I know when all the symptoms started. But as it was happening to me at the time, there was no way anyone could convince me that I was pregnant. Like, It was a parasite. I believed it was a parasite in my stomach for a long time. I thought that I was like malnourished and that's why like my abdomen was distended. I thought that like I was just getting fat. I don't know like anything, anything it took to believe I wasn't pregnant because the idea of being homeless, addicted to heroin in this like toxic, horrible relationship It was too much. Like, my brain, I really do feel like my brain knew I couldn't, or my higher power knew I couldn't take that information all at once. And so, for about seven months, I denied anything and any sign of pregnancy that I saw. Like, nope, that's nothing. Nope, that's not it. No, it's not it. Yeah. And um, I ended up getting arrested, (laughs) flying a sign, and um, which is kind of funny story because I was flying the sign, and the it was like the park ranger that pulled over and he, he ran my name and I had warrants. And so he's like, all right, well, Tempe PD will be here in a second. And I just started running up Scottsdale road, like straight up the road. And he just drove next to me and said, I don't know why you're running. We'll see you in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pregnant at the time, but I don't believe I'm pregnant. You know, he probably knew I was pregnant. I think everyone knew my mom had seen me and thought I was pregnant. It was just, it was like too much to handle. So yeah. I get arrested. I go to jail in Tempe. And in the jail, I started having preterm labor because the way it works with opiates is if a mother stops abruptly using opiates while pregnant, the, the baby goes, the into, baby goes withdrawals. into withdrawals. And it yeah. can end up where the baby dies from that sort of thing. So they rush me to the ER, um, which was a horrible experience because the paramedics... I feel like the paramedics were trying to do, like, a scared straight tactic with me. But what they really did was, like, tell me what a fucked up mom I would be. And that my kid would be born deformed. And who does heroin when they're pregnant. Like, I had any conscious thought of that. And um, so we get to there, to the emergency room. And that was the first time I had, like, an ultrasound. And that was where it was, like, oh, I'm actually pregnant. You know, and that was the first, like, that was really the first moment that I couldn't, like, pretend away, you know, and I ended up talking my way out of that arrest to where the, the sheriff that was guarding me in the hospital called the judge and the judge felt bad for me going to jail pregnant and they let me go. And, 
Uh, of course, I didn't show up to court, but... Yeah, well, so, like, that's a hard situation because, like, jail is not always the best... Uh, what's the word? Jail's not always the best option, especially for, like... Like, we're not criminals. Right. You know, we just have a... We have a problem. Right. And especially being pregnant, I can't imagine... Well, yeah, and I mean, that was when Sheriff Joe was running stuff down there and, like... It's a, it was a strict, strict-ass jail. Yeah. And um, there had been all kinds of pregnant women having issues with their pregnancies, like, just normal, not even addicted, um, in, in custody. So I don't know what, like, God or... It was God, for sure. But um, I never ended up, like, three other times being pregnant from that moment, they never took me into custody. They would tell me to go to my court dates, run my name, see my warrants, and then let me go. And... So most of that was happening in like the Mesa area. And so the time comes, I'm super like, I'm like a, a split person. Like I have a split part of myself. Like there's the half of me that knows I'm like pregnant and going to have this baby. And then there's like the half of me that just believes if I like imagine it away, it'll go away. Um, and then like the due date comes and that's April 24th. And literally on the due date, I start having like contractions. And so I have April 24th, 2010, 2010. So I go into labor, I go to the hospital. It's a nightmare experience. Start to finish. Um, it was super, I don't even know the words. It was gut wrenchingly like painful and impossible to believe that it was like even happening. It was like, I almost like was outside of my own body at the time. And like my mom finally came down. I purposely didn't call her and tell her because I was just so ashamed of myself. And like, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm not taking this baby home. There's no home, you know, it's yeah. like. And so she came and, you know, did a mom's job at supporting me. And like um, CPS was in my room the next morning uh, with like this list of reasons why they were going to take custody of the baby and they were it was like reading this list and like it's so weird because these things are like fragments in my brain now but like reading the paper with all these like they felt like charges you know I wasn't charged with anything like in a court but they were all like you know neglect and endangerment and abandonment and all this stuff and so like reading that list of charges I feel like I left my soul just left at that point and so, like, everyone there really pushed me to go see my daughter and to, like, hold her, um, which was, like, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what that was like. I remember being wheeled in and seeing her and, and, like, refusing to hold her. And eventually, I kind of thawed out a little bit enough to, like, hold her and, and you know, whatever. But regardless, CPS was going to take custody as soon as she was done detoxing. She was born um dependent on heroin um which i used to say addicted but i learned like babies can't get addicted because they are not capable of making choices yeah so it's it's more of a dependence at that point like that's all their body knew um and so she was healthy she was like eight pounds 12 ounces you know her apgar score was like at nine like higher than my other daughters she was like I don't know, she was 21 inches long, like super healthy, had all her fingers and toes and, you know, everything. But um, she was, you know, she had to go through withdrawal. Yeah. And it was horrible. It was, so in order to cope with her going through withdrawal, like 
the concept of like getting sober right in this moment was like not even a, a possibility. You no. know, I couldn't, I just couldn't. And so I continued getting high and so did my boyfriend at the time. And um, they eventually figured out we were getting high in the hospital while she was in the neonatal unit. And so they kicked us out. And they called the cops. The cops came. It was a Mesa police officer who came. And I had warrants still, those same old warrants. And he's like, I'm not going to arrest you. I just need you to give me the baby. I'm not going to charge you with all this stuff we found. Because it was like these rooms where, like, the baby's in their little bed and then, like, the parents have a bed. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of like we were living there because we were homeless, you know. So, of course, we didn't leave until they... Um, they said the way it worked, the CPS would take custody after she was done detoxing. And so we stayed for like five weeks, I think. And then they kicked us out. And from five weeks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cause it took nine. They did a very slow. Yeah. You know, I they, mean, they do like one less milligram a mm-hmm. day for. It was, like, crazy how slow they did it. But it was good because, like, her side effects were minimal, at least from what I can remember through, like, the clouded eyes that I had. She, you know, she seemed okay. Like, she slept, she ate, you know, things like that. I I got to give her one bath. Um, But then after they kicked us out, um, I had one meeting with CPS, and they told me, look, you have six months. You have to get your, your... yourself sober get a job get a place to live you know reliable transportation and if you don't do it in six months like we will terminate your rights because we don't play around with newborns um we don't want them to form an attachment to someone and then have to take them later so yeah and i get it like a hundred percent yeah but that's like asking you for a million dollars at that point yeah you know it was a lot to try to come up from like <laughs> actively using, you know, and they're like, go to a methadone clinic. And I'm like, okay, how do I get there? You know, and like, they didn't give me a lot of guidance, like, get on a waiting list for rehab. And like, okay, which rehabs, you know, and it was just, it was too much to navigate on my own with no advocates, with no, you know, I mean, my mom would kind of help as much as she could, but she at this point was raising my other daughter because, um, her dad had gotten wasted and picked up a charge. And so they had temporary custody of my other daughter. And they were like, I'm sorry, but we don't want to raise like your two kids for you. I don't think they thought I would get sober. Um, yeah. And so she ended up going with a foster family from the hospital. And what I know of that now, is she was adopted by the same foster family. So she ever only knew one family, which yeah. is awesome. You yeah, know, I know that. And, and my rights were severed October 26th of 2010. So six almost six months to the day. And when my rights were severed, it just went to shit and I um, went harder. And within a week of my rights being severed, I was hospitalized in Scottsdale. And it turned out that I had all the MRSA had grown in my lungs because I also had valley fever. And so valley fever eats uh, like holes wherever it grows. And um, the MRSA just went and grew in the holes. Yeah. And so like that for me was like the, the turning point because they gave me like a 95% chance of mortality, like death, and a 5% chance to live. And um, we had to call my mom and I had to do like a power of attorney and like just crazy from like 
this life of just misery and suffering because most of those four years was misery and suffering. Um, and then I lose the baby and she goes on and I, my rights are severed and now I'm in this hospital and I'm dying. Like my mom's the only one that's coming really to see me. My sister came a couple times, but everybody was sick of my shit. And my dad was not going to come see me and they had to do, um, a major lung surgery and crack my ribs and cut open parts of my lungs to remove all the infection. And so I spent like a month and a half in that hospital in Scottsdale. And then like another month and a half or two in a nursing home in Phoenix. And during the time in the nursing home, like I was still heavily medicated because the pain of having your ribs cut open is insane. And I was probably milking it, if I'm being honest, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm a drug addict. You're giving me like IV drugs. I'll take them, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I had like a fentanyl pump at one point. Like it was insane. But, um... So somewhere in that point in the nursing home is where like it kind of like the idea that like I had these two daughters out there in the world, whether or not I had custody of either or was ever going to, that like they had a mom and that the possibility that I would die like as a junkie was really real. Like it was such a very real possibility. And there was just like a a switch that kind of flipped that was like, I don't want to leave that legacy. And so instead of calling my mom and asking for her to bail me out, like I called rehabs and I reached out to a social worker in the nursing home and like did the legwork that it takes to figure out how I'm going to go from like 390 milligrams of, you know, MS cotton and 24 of Dilaudid to like a sober human functioning in society. (laughs) Maybe some Tylenol now and then. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Like how I was going to get there. And so they ended up saying I could go to the guidance center in Flagstaff. And I had swore I would never move back to Flagstaff. I didn't like it here. So we moved back. Or I I go back. But my cab driver's trying to sell my pills that I have. And I'm like alone in this cab with this guy who's like, let's sell all these pills. We'd be rich. And we end up at the guidance center and they don't have a bed like they had said they would. And like nothing's going my way per se, you know, (laughs) like anything had gone my way in a long time. Yeah. But I'm like crying outside the guidance center and I call my mom and I'm like, can I stay with you until they get me a bed? And she had to like call me back. Like she wasn't like, sure, (laughs) come on over. You know, (laughs) she was like, we got to talk about this. We'll call you back. I mean, the stuff you put her through. Like, like, no, know? she probably shouldn't have let me stay there for those two weeks, but yeah. she did. And like, thank God, because during those two weeks, I like self tapered down as low as I could go. And then I went to the guidance center and my mom had to like lock my pills up every day in like a safe and, and like a locking suitcase or something. And yeah. it was, you know, it was not like our it funnest. says every six hours of on. Yeah. Like that's it. You're not going to abuse <laughs> yeah. this. And so... That was like, you know, she didn't leave me alone in the house and she took all her money out and she had every right. You know what I mean? Like I had stolen and robbed and lied and cheated my way through the last four years. Like she had no reason to believe me. And um, she's a mom. She loves me. So she was like, all right, this is your last shot. So they put me, they dropped me off at the guidance center with like a pack of cigarettes and then you couldn't smoke at the guidance center anyway. (laughs) And Like that was it, you know, like we'll see you in 30 days. Um, and so I did the 28 days in there. It was terrible. Like I was detoxing off of all those pills. Um, but I stayed and like, I didn't go get high with like 
homeboy who came in and knew a connect. Like, I just stayed anyway. But, like, I also met a boyfriend in there, which was, like, you know, not a good idea. No, no. <laughs> it's not romance if it happens <laughs> yeah. in rehab. That's just the bottom line. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. It's it's your it's not codependence love. <laughs> and it's your self misery yes. not wanting to be alone. Yes, it's exactly. That's what it was. <laughs> so yeah, him and I got together and uh I left and went to the Freedom House in Flagstaff. Because my mom's like, no fucking way, you cannot live with us, you know? Yeah. Once again, totally understandable. <laughs> Listen, you said two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we're sticking to that. That's all you get. So uh, I went and did the Freedom House. And like three months into the Freedom House, the boyfriend is like, come live with me. And um, I remember she was the manager of the Freedom House. Oh, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. A person. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... I'll take it out. Don't worry. <laughs> and she had said, like, I know you're going to relapse if you leave here. Um, and I was like, fuck you, you don't know shit, he loves me, and, like, <laughs> off we went, on foot, you know, because no one had a car or a driver's license or anything, and I ended up having, like, this brief, so I had a surgery, because my lungs were still screwed up, my other lung still had MRSA, well, it still had valley fever in it, it didn't have MRSA, but it had valley fever, so there were still holes in my left lung, so they had to do another surgery, and I'm probably at this point, like, six months sober, and, and what year is this? This would be 2011. The beginning. 2011. So yeah, like okay. sep- the October, or I'm sorry, September 29th is my sobriety date, 2011. So in July of 2011, a couple months prior, I had the surgery. And you got to get pain pills when they cut your chest open. It's like, there's yeah, just certain yeah. things you can't yeah. Tylenol and Tylenol. ibuprofen your way through. <laughs> and that's one of them, you know. Yeah. So they, they did their best to, like, really kind of monitor it and keep it, like, like they sent me home with, like, six Percocet, and that was it. And um, yeah. no refills, you know, all that. But I ate the six Percocet, like, in the parking lot out of the hospital. And at this point, the boyfriend who I had met in rehab was already actively using. He was, like, getting high in my hospital bathroom. And uh, I'm, like, having this lung surgery, and he's, like, getting high. So when I got out and I ran out of Percocet, it was like, well, let's try this, you know? And, like, at this point, my daughter, my oldest daughter is probably about five, six, and she's living in Phoenix with her dad, and he's gotten sober, and he's, like, doing okay. And so, like, I had no, like, responsibilities. I didn't have a job yet. Um, So I was like, fuck it, let's try it. And it was horrible. I didn't get high. Uh, we couldn't find a vein. Um, I felt like this immense guilt that I had never felt before. And so, and I had two more surgeries and like medical procedures coming up. So I made the decision to get on Suboxone. And I had a sponsor who was a nurse. And she was like, all right, here's the deal. If you do what the doctors tell you, you do the counseling, you do the 12 steps, you actually work a program, you can make this work. She's like, but if you go home and you eat like four Suboxone and you don't go to meetings and you don't work steps, you're not going to stay sober. No. You know? And so like, that's really what I did. And I didn't tell anybody I was on Suboxone except my sponsor because there was this like... There's a stigma. A huge stigma. It sucks. Which I think is wrong. I do too. I mean, if you're using them correctly and you're tapering down and you're doing everything else you should be doing and like you do eventually get off of them, like I don't, I don't see the problem with that. Uh, but there are people who abuse Suboxone. Oh, I got yeah. a script for Suboxone, and I abuse the shit out of it. <laughs> um, 
Um, <laughs> so I many would, people. Yeah, I would keep a couple stash and I would trade the rest yep. to my dope dealer for some dope. Yep. And when I ran out of dope, the next day I had Suboxone, so it was all good. Yeah. But, uh, but, but no, I, I don't think there should be a stigma around like everybody taking Suboxone. Right. Like the, the Suboxone isn't sober thing is bullshit. It is bullshit. And it used yeah. to bug me a lot more than it does now because now... I'm like, whatever, I don't care. I know yeah. it's my journey. You know, yeah. like, whatever yeah. it took for me. So it was like, homeboy's still getting high. I don't really know how I'm going to get out of this relationship. Um, I do know that I want sobriety and I want my kids back at some point or at least one of them, you know. So what can I What can I do? So I'm going to take Suboxone and do meetings and I don't. he's going to do whatever he's going to do. And that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. And that went on for like two years. Um, so September 29th, 2011... Um, is my sobriety date and I took Suboxone for about four years in my sobriety. Um, I ended up getting to a place where like I knew that like the worst part of it was like if the doctors were like they didn't send through my like bridge or renew my script the panic I felt felt exactly like the panic of being a junkie and so I knew, like, this is, <laughs> we have to be yeah, done at some it point. Was, it was time to move on. Yeah, and I had had all the medical procedures. I had had, you know, two surgeries. I had been, I had a chest port put in for infusions to get rid of the valley fever. Like, I had gone through the medical stuff. And after every one of those surgeries, Suboxone saved my life because I would be coming off of Dilaudid and fentanyl and then going to what, nothing? No, I would have shot up dope, you know? Yeah. And so I ended up feeling like, once I got through those four years and I can look back at it now, like I know Suboxone was the thing that saved me in those two to three days after having surgeries. Um, and it probably managed some of the pain of the surgeries as well. Yeah. And so I really just felt like it was like, that's what it had to be, you know, for me. I don't, I know lots of people who's, who totally abuse it, but, um, but I know, I know plenty of people who used it as a tool to get sober. Too, yeah. So, yeah. Right. And so that's kind of how I see it. And like, yeah. that's how, that's why I didn't change my sobriety date when I got off Suboxone. I had to self taper because my access ran out because I made too much money. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, well, it's now or never. And so like I had known it was coming. And so I tapered myself down to the lowest dose I could manage. And then I squirreled away all the rest of my Suboxone so I could use them for a self taper. And so it took me about six and a half months um, and I tapered and it was horrible and it was just as bad as they say it is. And, um, during that time, so this would have been probably like four, four and a half years into my sobriety. And I, I had not gotten into the HA heroin anonymous community because of this like suboxone stigma that I felt. And so like right at that point, it was like, I was dying from these withdrawals and craving dreams and like things I hadn't felt and like emotions that had been kind of suppressed by the Suboxone. Um, and so I dove in like headfirst to the program and like didn't look back, you know? And so I've been off Suboxone like almost six years now and oh my God, it's like night and day difference, you know, like how I see the world. There were things about it that shifted my views. And so like there was almost like a re- birth that happened because I I think there was just like that thing like they talk about that blocks you from your higher power um I think that existed a little bit you know like I prayed and I had a sponsor and I did amends and I you know did everything in the steps and um but I didn't sponsor because I didn't feel right sponsoring on Suboxone for some reason from the stigma probably 
And so, like, once I got off Suboxone, like, I started doing all the stuff that they told me to do, and it it changed how I saw, like, my own recovery, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a wild, th- those four years were wild, because I was having just medical procedure after medical procedure, and I'm, like, working at Satchmo's, like, trying to, like... I don't know. When I got a job there, and this is funny, I don't even care if he hears it because he already knows, but when I got a job there, I told the boss, the owner, that I had like six months sober. I actually had like six days sober. And and he like eventually entrusted his whole business to me. You know, like I ran everything. I had the keys and the codes to anything and everything. And so we used to joke about it later. Like, yeah, yeah you let a junkie with six days like yeah. run your business. I see him once a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should tell him. He'll totally laugh. He'll be like, oh, yeah. shit, you know Yvonne? You know she only had six days sober when she yeah. got hired. Yeah. He thinks it's hilarious. Because then he also got to watch me. Um, he's like my brother, you know, like he got to watch me grow up and get sober. And I met Rob there at Satchmo's and he had like three and a half years sober at that point and I had like one and a half and I don't know we like bonded over tattoos or something and it was like he was in a relationship I was in a relationship so it wasn't going anywhere and then and then it did you know and then he started like swishing and spitting his beer I feel like he was talking about that last week he did talk about it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember being like, yo, you're an alcoholic. You cannot swish and spit. <laughs> yeah, no, no, like no. it's not going to work, yeah, you know? But it's his story. You it's know? his story. And it was hilarious because like, it's so funny that it came up in his story. Cause I yeah. was like, yeah, I remember those conversations. And it was, it was a challenge to keep Yvonne in Yvonne's lane because I'm working as his boss I'm like the mom kind of of Satchmo's and I have all these little children (laughs) and they are children um, (laughs) that like came to me, you know, for advice about their drug problems. And I'm like trying to stay sober. And then there's this strapping man who does tattoos. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And he won me over. (laughs) He And like, so like the funny thing is, is like, like looking back, people will say like, well, he started drinking. You should have been like done. But it wasn't like that. Like, it was like, I couldn't imagine not being with him. And I remember um, talking to sponsors about this and like, what do I do? And they're like, if you're not going to leave him, you just need to accept it and wait for him to figure it out. Yeah. And that's what I eventually did. And that was like a saving grace for us as like a family because then there was none of this crazy fighting and, you know, the stuff that comes with it. Yeah. And my daughter didn't even really know until he went to rehab. So, like, it was, like, this really quiet presence that, like, um, was devastating to watch. But I was able to, like, dig into my program and it forced me to go to Al-Anon. It forced me to seek therapy. It forced me to get a new sponsor because, like, his suffering and his pain was affecting me so deeply that I knew I had to take care of me. Or yeah. we're screwed. And and I'm sure him seeing that helped him, you know? Like, he was like, oh, okay, maybe maybe this is possible. Maybe I got <laughs> right? my shit together. He used to yeah. tell me, like, so he would have these big, elaborate gifts on my sobriety birthdays. Like, I don't know, like a bull of a watch or like $400 pair of sunglasses <laughs> on my, like, sobriety birthdays, yeah, you yeah. know? And he's, like, drinking actively. So, like... I knew that he had a piece of him that wanted it 
Yeah, and because there was, of there how was some that guilt was. There or something. Something. He yeah. just he was so, and it was it was sweet. He would like get me roses and like make a way bigger deal about that. And I think it's because like a piece of him, and I don't know, I can't speak for him, but like it felt like a piece of him was inspired, you know, and like maybe a seed had been planted. Yeah. yeah. And that was like so that allowed me to be like, okay, this is what it is. I'm gonna take care of me. I'm gonna love him from from like what do they say? Detach with love. And so I had to detach with love and dig into like my program. And like, yeah. so in a lot of ways it, it, it gave me like friendships in the rooms that I wouldn't have had. It gave me the ability to like, um, build an identity in the rooms outside of Rob that existed, whether he was going to come in or not. Um, and then when he came in to the rooms, it was like, it just added to it instead of like subtracted. You know, it was like he came in and there was just more love and more whatever. And so it it was just like, you know, I would never like want to go back and do it all over again because <laughs> it was really hard yeah. and painful. I don't know if I would do it if I... <laughs> it's really hard. I don't recommend it to anybody. And it's so yeah. funny because like my sponsees will tell me like, well, you did it. You dated someone who drank. And I'm like, yeah, but like it fucking sucked. Yeah. It was hard because I loved him so much. And, and like, he wasn't like, he was like the weirdest, like closet drunk. So like, he didn't, you know, it was like not visible. Like he, you wouldn't really even know unless you knew what to look for because he's already kind of like a boisterous personality. So it was just like a little more boisterous. Yeah. And then like the depression and all that came and that's where, that's where like my detach came from because I couldn't watch him suffer and he didn't, he didn't take it out on anyone but himself. You know, and he's he's just the hardest guy on himself. So I had to go to work and be like, do not talk to me about this anymore. You guys have to handle it. Because they would come to me like, what do we do about this? And I'm like, he's my fiance. Like, yeah. do not involve me in these decisions. Like, I don't <laughs> want to know, you know? Yeah. And so, like, that's kind of what that looked like. And that was, like, a huge challenge of my recovery. Um, it was kind of like a, a do or die moment of, like, you're either going to do this recovery shit or you're just going to give up and join them. Cause there's a piece of you that's like, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. You know? And yeah. it played in my head only a couple times. Like, well, you could get wasted with all the guys at Satchmo's and like go smoke weed out back. And I was like, no, you can't. No, You've proven you can't no, do this yeah. stuff a hundred times. It doesn't work. <laughs> and so then I would go to a meeting instead, you know? And so like that, like it almost like was the driving force that like entrenched me. Yeah. In the community of AA, you know? So maybe it was a blessing. I think it was. I think it I, had to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm super glad you found Rob uh, because it sounds like you haven't had many good men in your life. I haven't. And I think he's a good man. He is. He's, he's a really good man. He's like yeah. the kind of good man that you have that you're like, is this like even real? Yeah. yeah. Like, could Did he really just... be this good? You know? Yeah. And like... To think of somebody like in their active addiction who never hurts you. He's never even called me a name, which seems like who should, like, whoa, <laughs> big deal. But coming from what I came from, yeah. like everyone called me names. You know what I mean? And here we are like eight years into our relationship with all kinds of crazy stuff that happened between us. And he has literally never even called me a name. You know, like he's just a good fucking dude. And like, I love him to pieces. And there wasn't any way I was going to like give up on him and so that's how we ended up this way right on right on <laughs> sweet so i i want to ask a hard question is that okay yeah okay 
have you have you tried to like contact your daughters at all? Like, can we talk about that? We can talk about that. I know it's I know it's a it's good emotional subject. It's good. So my oldest daughter, um, she's fifteen now. Um, She came back into my life when I had about six months sober, and she has been there ever since. Um, she lives with me full time now. And, um, so that's been amazing. I've got to like re, I got to, I get to make living amends with her every day, you know? Yeah. And that's been good. My youngest daughter, um, will be turning, uh, what year is this? 11. She'll be turning 11. It's okay. I just am good at math. <laughs> that's it. That's why I asked. She'll years. be 11 in April. So what, like a month from now. Um, and because of the conditions of the adoption and the um, severing of my parental rights, uh, I don't know how to get a hold of her. And so my mom maintained like a minimal friendship with the, the people who adopted her. But they don't want me to have their information. Um, and then, so like I've, I've literally probably every April, I sit down and I attempt to like write this letter to them. Um, it used to be to her, but like, I don't, I, I don't know, like, there's this weird thing in my brain that like blocks me from putting out like what I actually feel instead of like what I think people who would read it would think I should feel. And so it's been that, that way with like writing to her parents and like, I could write and send it to CPS in, um, Mesa and they could, you know, send it to them. And I've tried like like a good seven times but every time I start writing it it doesn't feel um I don't know it just feels fake you know it doesn't feel real and so um the only thing I do know is like they send my mom pictures when she asks so I know what she looks like um and she's beautiful and she's amazing and she's smart and she's funny I know these things because of what they tell my mom yeah and then my mom relays it to me but the idea that I would like send them a letter. I would want it to be like a hundred percent authentic. And I, I don't know if it's trauma. I don't know if it's, I don't know what it is that, uh, that prevents me from like getting really real about it. And it's shitty because she's, I mean, what, seven years away from being 18, which is yeah. A huge trip because it always felt like 18 like I would say like maybe when she's 18 she'll come find me um and like to think it's only seven years away is like whoa like the time has just flown so you know that's that's a it's a hard one like it's a hard one to you have to like go in the feeling and that sucks yeah yeah because it's painful and I don't I, I've never wanted to like disrupt her course you know yeah and so it's like if you know i i've always said like if it's something that because she knows she's adopted they've told her um i think at one point like i sent my mom a family tree of like both sides of her um biological families and so she could have that but like it's almost like this it's too (laughs) it's like too big to open you know i i don't know but I can empathize. I believe that's the correct word. Yeah, it's just like, I, I, where do you start? You know, yeah, like, hey, yeah. you don't know me and you don't know anything. 
um, they, you know, my mom will update them like probably like every other year on like how I'm doing, um, and how my daughter's doing and they're always receptive to it. So I know they would be receptive. I'm sure they're, they're great people. You know what I'm saying? Like it's wild. Like it's like, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's like the most traumatic it's, it's just like this, it's kind of like a hole. And like in the beginning, when she, when I first got sober, like it was kind of small. And I kind of thought that like the longer I stayed sober, like the smaller the hole would get. But actually what happens is like you thaw out and you become like uh, a good person, you know, and a good mom. And like every year it actually gets harder you start to feel it more and more and it's weird because like april's the worst i hate the month of april but i love it because their birthdays my daughters are born eight days apart so my oldest turns 16 um on the 16th scary very (laughs) it's been a frightening journey very frightening but you know she's a good kid she really is and then I get all excited and I'm like telling her birth story to her, you know, because that's like our tradition. Like, oh, about this time you were born and I felt like this and this is what happened. And we went to the hospital and and then like right after her birthday, <clears throat> like a wave of grief comes yeah. because the birth story is not a pleasant one, you know, for for my youngest. And I don't know, it's such a... It's such a trip. And, like, you know, uh, my sponsors, every sponsor I've ever had has always told me, like, when you're ready, you'll know. Like, it'll just, when you're ready to write it, it'll come. Um, And you kind of think, like, maybe by, like, two years sober, I'll be ready. Yeah. And then, like, you know, I'm coming up on ten years, and, like, I've never written the letter. I've never done it. It's crazy. It's weird how it works. It's not crazy, though. You know, you understand that, right? Yeah. Um, we can't always just fix everything just because we got sober. No. And, like, that was the one thing, you know, that I think <clears throat> losing custody, like, of my oldest, like, I kind of always knew I would have a shot to get her back because, you know, her dad wanted me to have or wanted her to have me in in her life and she had known me for two years and you know whatever and she had visited me a few times while I was struggling but like when my rights were severed it just felt like so final that it was like this is not even achievable and so I'm pretty good at like compartmentalizing and so I just like put it in a box in my brain and heart and just kind of close it and then it opens in April and then in order to like (laughs) I don't know, go on with life. I put it back in the box. You close it again. You know, so, I mean, I I believe that, like, the main goal was when I got sober and I had to, like, face this, like, wreckage and ripple effect of my of my addiction that I I only cared about, like, two things. And that would be, like, if, if and when I die, well, not if, when I die, um, that my legacy is a good one and not... A drug addict's legacy and then two was that if my youngest ever went looking that like I would be worth finding 
And, and that it wouldn't just be like knocking on a trap house door to find her mom, you know, still doing the same shit. Um, that like there would be a story, um, of like resilience that she would be able to draw on in her own life. Because what I do know from having a teenage daughter is like, we cannot in any way, shape or form prevent their struggles and their journey is their journey. Yeah, I'm scared of that. It's terrifying. <laughs> and it was the first time that I like got on my knees and prayed sobbing in my whole life was in regards to when my daughter, my oldest, was going through her struggles as a teenager, in especially at 13. And, you know, like I came to a place of like there, there was no one that could have stopped me when I was partying and drinking as a teenager. Like there's only so much. And so I try to lead by example. Um, and so like. I think I, I feel like I can check that one off the list that like she knows like what it means to be resilient, my my oldest. And hopefully, you know, someday, like if my youngest comes looking, there's a huge conversation there um, because yeah. it hasn't been like I put her away and didn't feel it. I just sometimes yeah. you open the box of feelings and they literally suffocate you. And I remember like thinking to myself like one day I'll wake up and it won't hurt as much and then like time went on and it hurt more and more because because um I'm like a functioning member of society now like it's like what's my excuse you know like there's no but the truth is is that like um it's painful to to realize that like there's a human that I brought into this world who will probably have a lot of my traits and not have me to help guide her through that, you know? Have, have, and, and this is just, uh, I, like, I don't have any experience in this, but like, have you ever considered maybe just like opening the door? Like maybe you could write a letter to the parents and be like, hey, you know, I got this amount of time, I'm doing this. I just want you to know that whenever you guys are ready or whenever she's ready or whenever, if they have any questions, like you can reach out to me. Yeah. And then you might be like, you know, looking at your phone every 30 seconds for five years. You know, who knows? <laughs> right. But like. Um, I have thought about it. And, and it's like, um, and you know, they have told my mom, like, if she wants to get into contact with us, this is how she can do it. She can write a letter to CPS. CPS will deliver it to us, you yeah. know. Um, and like, and they're probably just doing that to protect her for sure because yeah, for all they know, they adopted this baby who was born dependent on drugs and their mother was, Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, they have no reason to to open that door on their side. Like the door has to be open on my side and, and what's really crazy and, and like, is like all this stuff happened in Mesa or whatever. And the only thing I do know about them is that um, the dad that adopted her is a Mesa police officer. And so there's like a piece of me that's always thought he was one of the police officers that I came into contact with. And so like I thought about opening the door in that way and just being like, hey, dude, like, did we ever come into contact? I don't care. Like, I'm thrilled that they raised this beautiful girl for me, you know? Yeah. And I think I gave them a gift. Um, and I think they would say the same. I mean, like, I was able to give a family who couldn't, you know, have any more kids 
a gift. They have a beautiful daughter. Yeah. And so, like, I think of those times and, and it's like, it's such a weird thing how well trained my body is because, like, my body responds to this, this loss before my brain and my heart. And so, like, in March, I start feeling kind of out of sorts and I can't put my finger on it. And then April comes around and it kind of gets worse, you know, and I do all the things I've been taught to do and I step up my game in my recovery and I journal, but I don't journal about that. And um, a counselor told me once, like, this is how it'll be until you really open that door and let it, you know, just wash over you. And it's, it's, I've written like some, because I want to write a book. So hopefully there's like some amazing publisher who's like, hey, we'll let you write a book for us. Listening. Well, you got to write the book first. Um, <laughs> I have a lot written. I do. Okay. Just okay. not the whole book. Listen, you write a book, we'll come on here and promote it, okay? <laughs> I, I learned how to use hashtags. I'm going to be getting some more likes here soon Um. yeah i mean i think like i think of like the the concept that like we keep having to learn the same lesson over and over until until we're ready to like actually grow from it and i don't think i've been there yet and you know um i wish that i like was there and maybe i will be one day you know maybe this will be the year it's always, it's always like April's a weird month and then it kind of lingers in May and, and then I kind of like go about my life, but it, there's always a piece of me that is, um, that struggles. To, th- this is the thing I've been struggling with lately. I'm probably going on too long, but no, this, you're fine. this is Wait, the thing I've been, no, like, time <laughs> I've been struggling with lately is watching people, um, around me with kids, um, fuck up and yeah a piece of me is angry not at them like it's a it's a mirror you know what I mean it's a it's a direct mirror of who I was and so but at the time I'm like I'm like you screwed up your chance with your kids and like you know I and like I used to tell people like maybe I'll get like a do-over you know and I'll get to have another kid one day Um, and like, that's just not in the cards for us and that's okay. But it was like, God, these people get like second and third chances. And I had one chance, you know, with, with this one particular kid, you know, my oldest, I got hundreds of chances and I'm thrilled, you know, but it was kind of like this little piece of me that's like jealous that people lose their kids and then they get to have another kid and then they like get high. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like. You know, and I know it's, I know it's a disease and I, I know that like feeling angry at somebody is pointless because like we're all the same, but, um, it's just, it's super hard to watch. And I know I've talked to other people, other moms who feel the same way when people like lose their kids a second or a third time. And like these moms have lost their kids permanently, you know, and they don't get a second chance. And so it's like. That's been my struggle is like, and I really think it's my higher power kind of presenting like the mirror of like, remember, you're the same, like you're no better and no different, but it's still like gut-wrenchingly painful to watch. And then like all, you know, I babysit, like I love babies. And that was a hard thing because <laughs> yeah. I didn't like babies for probably five years of my sobriety. If there was a baby in a room, I left. 
Like, <laughs> it was too painful. Like, yeah. do not cry around me. Do not smile. Do not laugh. Like, I'm not doing it. And, um, like, in the last, like, probably four to five years, like, I've really, like, been, like, t- like pulled towards these babies. You know, anyone has a baby, I'm like, give me your baby, please. <laughs> it's, like, the greatest thing. Yeah. And um, my mom asked me recently, like, I was babysitting somebody, and she was like, God, is that hard for you? Is it hard for you to watch, you know, someone's kid who's either actively using or someone they care about has relapsed or something has happened, and you're you're holding their baby, like... And I'm like, no, it's kind of cathartic. Like, it's kind of healing to be able to um, give back where I took so yeah. much, you know? And so, like, it allowed me, it's put me in a position to be a part of the village as, a, as opposed to, like, part of the problem that requires a village because all kinds of people helped raise my kids, not me. Yeah. And so, like, now I get this chance to, like, so anytime I'm, like, you know, it, that I do kind of feel sad or whatever when I am holding somebody's baby. I'm like, man, this is this is your service work. Like, this is what you get to do because of what you took from, you know, the community at large. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not the Flagstaff community, but definitely yeah, the right. Phoenix community, you know. And, and, um, and so it's allowed me, like, this kind of, like, there's been some growth surrounding, like, babies in the last couple of years. But then, like, when something happens and and I'm watching the, the parents struggle through that, it's like, ugh. Yeah. It's hard. It's yeah. super hard. <sighs> I can't say I feel the same about babies. <laughs> it depends on what shirt I'm wearing. Right? You know? <laughs> if it's, like, a nice shirt, you're like, no. Yeah. No, you're going to drool mm-hmm. all over this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a blessing, though, because I get to have, like, the laughter and, like, the silliness and the, like crying and all of that in my house for a few hours and then I'm like okay here's your baby back <laughs> here's your baby back yeah <laughs> and I get yeah. to like love on them if I see them and you know buy them like silly little things like I brought a friend um this one it's like a onesie and the sleeves on it are like tattoo sleeves oh right on, right on. Cool. <laughs> you know so cool. I'm like I get to do little things like yeah. that yeah um but like the real healing for me is gonna come with like being able to face my demons surrounding it because I think the guilt and the shame that exists as a parent and I don't know like I always say it's moms but I know dads have it too um but there's just something about like a a mom's guilt that like permeates everything you know yeah and so that's kind of like been the part the one thing in my recovery that is still just not really healed yet. Yeah. I don't know if it's just mom's guilt, you know? Yeah. Brielle's probably one of the main reasons I decided to take my head out of my ass. But anyways, thank you for coming and sharing your story. You're welcome. I, I, I'm, I'm still in awe every time I hear it. Like, <laughs> you're such a like strong woman in the community, and I'm super grateful you're around. Well, thank you. It's, like, so weird to think of myself that way, but... <laughs> thank you yeah, yeah yeah no problem that was cool like it was a good experience for me like i got to cry a little and yeah i was gonna offer you a tissue but like i have like hard ass paper towels so oh yeah those aren't gonna do yeah, it anyway yeah. it's better like i didn't wear makeup on purpose okay anyways when you write your book yeah dude, like 
I'm going to do it one day. I'll buy the first copy. You know? <laughs> I'm going to do it. It's going to be named My First Name is Mommy. And that's going to be the title. Um, so You shouldn't have said that. Somebody's going to steal it. Fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Avon. Thank you. Thank you. you.